We're in the continued um, account of uh, Jacob and uh, his 12 sons and Joseph's uh, being elevated to this position of authority inside Egypt. And now we're coming to the end of uh, Jacob's life and we're going to see the, the passing of uh, authority and blessing that takes place here. So in Genesis chapter 48, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. Now before we move on, this kind of sets a number of things on the stage for us to understand in that there is physically a separation between Joseph, Jacob's son, and his father, Jacob. Um, as much as they've all been brought from Canaan into Egypt, the, you know, the, the family of Jacob is now living inside the land of Goshen and working as shepherds and herdsmen. As much as that's going on, Joseph's position is the second in authority in all of the land of Egypt. So, you know, his power, his position, his duties are such. And also we've talked about the fact that the Egyptians viewed shepherds as an abomination. Uh, they viewed them as unclean and unsanitary and didn't want to be around them. So it would be difficult for Joseph to be traveling back and forth between his family and that position of authority. So this is why we hear he's told, indeed, your father is sick, because there's a physical separation between Joseph and his family. And uh, you're going to see some points of conversation that indicate uh, he hasn't been able to keep in continual uh, communication. So there are some things that um, you know I'll try to remember to point out as we move through this. So he gets this message, indeed, your father is sick, he took uh, with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Remember that uh, Manasseh and Ephraim uh, were born to Joseph in Egypt. So, you know, these young boys have the separation, you know, of, uh, you know, logistically, they, they weren't in Canaan and, uh, you know, their grandfather didn't see them come into the world. And now this position of authority has sort of kept them separated. Uh, and Jacob was told, uh, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself. Uh, so here, um, just for clarification's sake, remembering that God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So we're going to see you know, at least this one occasion where Jacob is referred to as Israel. He strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, you might want to remember that phrase, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants, referring to Canaan, after you, you as an everlasting possession. So God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, that statement that he made. Luz is another name for Bethel. You can see in Genesis chapter 28 at verse 19, referring to Jacob, he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city had been Luz previously. You see the same thing in Genesis 35 verse 6, where we're told that you know it's called Luz, but it's also referred to as Bethel. 
Now, later it says, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you there in the section from verse 1 to verse 4. That is the, it's very similar, that phrase, to what God said to Abraham in the very beginning of this whole relationship of this family with God. You can look back to Genesis chapter 17, beginning at verse 2. The Lord said to Abraham, I will make my covenant between me and you, as that is Abraham, and will multiply you exceedingly. And then in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. Kings shall come from you. And then later in verse 8, also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are strangers, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, first of all, clearly Abraham was very careful to pass on the promises of God's word exactly as they had been given to him, because now you have Jacob all these years later reciting those things to his own son. He's, he's memorized them, he's clung to them, and now he's delivering them with a near-perfect accuracy as to what had been relayed by the Lord directly to Abraham many years earlier. So, you know, therein is the importance of teaching our children the Word of God. You know, the things that we know and understand, the things we've learned, the relationship we have with the Lord, making sure that we relay that to those that we love, our, you know, our loved ones, our grandchildren. You know, uh, you know I was watching uh, John and Nina up here and uh, thinking of the time when, you know, we had the school and Nina lived in our house. And, you know, she's a daughter of sorts to our family. And it's the blessing that you have people in your life. You have, you know, grandkids, like I said, and those that you're close to. Make sure you take the opportunity to relay the promises and the truths of God's word into anyone's life that God puts into your environment. I Sort of an off-subject thing. I relate it to some of you, but many years ago... I was working for uh, a gas uh, station there. We had two facilities, one in Brewer, one in Bangor. I was an assistant manager and um, <clears throat> we had a new employee and uh, I had shared my faith with all of the other employees and just, you know, as much as I could, not forcing it upon them, but every opportunity relay the truth of God's word. You know, Kevin Prue was one of those men that worked there with me and I just shared the word with him constantly, every chance that I got. And a new employee there didn't know me well at all and he comes into the staff room and he starts in with what you know is obviously going to be a joke and you know I'm listening and you know a couple of the employees staying there stopped him so wait wait a minute like is this like are you lining up to tell a foul joke and he was like yeah and he plows back and they're like no no, no stop and, and, and you know he's like what what is the problem and he's trying and they're like no no Will doesn't want to hear this And before it's done, he's insistent that he's going to tell. These guys have literally taken a hold of him and marched him out the door. And I'm standing inside looking at them out in the parking lot like, you know, I'm like, when did I ever ask for that? You know, I had never, you know, and they came back in like, we took care of that. You know, so I, just, <clears throat> I, I had never at any time said to the guys, now, listen, you can't. You know, when they would get going like that, I just leave the room. 
You know, that's their native tongue. That's how they talk. I don't expect them to behave as Christians. I just don't participate in it. But I had been faithful to deliver the truth of God's word and share with them and preach with them and pray with them to the point that when this begins in their presence, they're like, none of that here, man. They put the kibosh to it. Be faithful, brothers and sisters, especially, you know, as the world, you know, forces this politically correct attitude on us more and more. Stand up for the truth. Preach the word. Say what needs to be said. You know, if you're in one of those environments where, you know, it, it might get you in trouble. You know, one of the things I did, and this, this will seem weird, was <clears throat> I would point out to people, uh, remember that you brought this up. And they're like, what are you talking about? You, you brought up my faith. And now we're going to talk about, let's, let's both remember, you started this conversation. And I kept a journal. On this date, at this time, this co-worker started talking to me about my faith, and this was the conversation that followed. So that if I ever got called into account, I could say, no, well, let's just look it up. Here it is, right here. That seems like a lot of work, but you still have the freedom to share your faith in this environment. As hostile as it's getting, right, you still do. And, and I'll share again with you. I've been fired from jobs because of my faith. At times, you're going to pay the cost. Oh, well. The beautiful thing is the Lord will repay you for it. So be faithful to share. Here, you know, Jacob is accurately relaying the promises that the Lord gave Abraham all those years ago. 48.5. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you begot after them, shall be yours. They shall be called by the names or the name of their brother in their inheritance. It's as though Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandsons as his sons to replace Reuben and Simeon. You might want to take note of that. Jacob's first and second born, probably because Jacob views them as disqualified from the inheritance. Uh, it began with uh, Simeon in uh, Genesis 34, uh, verse 25. It came to pass on the third day when the men of the region were in pain, you remember that account, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, uh, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly into the city and killed all the males. They just massacred everyone. And as such, Jacob was tremendously displeased with them because of how that made the people in the region view they It caused everyone in the region to view him and his family as godless. They were untrustworthy. They were murderous. And he, he pronounces great judgment upon them. And then later in Genesis 35, at verse 22, it says, And it happened, while well, Israel, that is Jacob, dwelt in the land, that Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. So that violation of the marriage bed. And he's saying, you're cut yourself off. You've violated my relationship with one of my wives, and therefore you can't you know, be part of the Lord's blessing in this. So 
this issue of uh, the twelve that are here, and now you see that Joseph is basically being divided into two. Ephraim and Manasseh are going to take his place in the inheritance. So the twelve essentially become thirteen. Now that, that might seem a little confusing uh, for those of you that have you know studied biblical numerology. Jacob's adoption of Manasseh and Ephraim tells us why there are twelve tribes listed in different combinations. You see that all through the scripture. You, you start reading the list and suddenly there's like a change of order. Ephraim's inserted and others are taken out. And it can be confusing if you're you know, trying to find some very clear understandings of these 12. So because of that adoption, there are actually 13 sons of Israel, if you consider you know, Manasseh and Ephraim. So let me just sort of run through the numbers 12 here and their significance a little bit. Um, this two tribes uh, that are created causes it to be that there are 20 or more different ways that the tribes are listed in the scripture. So you shouldn't at any point look at the 12 tribes and try to find a very specific way and say that's the way it should be listed because there are at least 20 different ways the Lord uses them. So 12 is often associated with government. We've talked about this on a lot of different levels. And again, let me just go through this sort of scientific breakdown of the word for a moment. Um, We'll get back to the interesting stuff in a minute. But, um, you know, seven uh, is often thought of as the number of perfection, but biblically it really means completion. God finished creation in seven days, and throughout the scripture that's where you see the number seven signifying is a completeness or something that is finished. His judgments, seven bowls of wrath, things of that nature you're going to find repeatedly. Forty is actually, some say it's uh, about uh, trials uh, or uh, judgment. It's, it's more to do with testing. Jesus prayed and fasted for 40 days, and then the devil came to him and tempted him. So you see this sort of testing that goes on. Judgment is um, more associated with the number 50. Um, 12 usually has to do with government or governance. So uh, here you have 12 tribes. Jesus chose 12 apostles. Uh, There were 12 sons who became princes who were the sons of Ishmael. So uh, Hagar and her relationship with Abraham and Ishmael, the son that was born, he had 12 sons who were princes themselves also. Um, There are 12 pillars on Moses' altar, 12 stones in the high priest's breastplate. 12 cakes of showbread that were presented to the Lord daily in the temple, 12 silver platters that were used in uh, offering silver bowls, gold pans uh, for serving in the tabernacle, 12 spies to search out the land, Um, uh, 12 memorial stones taken out of the river when they crossed over uh, the Jordan, Uh, 12 governors under Solomon in his reign and rule, Uh, 12 stones in Elijah's altar. There, uh, when he was confronting the prophets of Baal, he set up uh, 12 stones. In each group of musicians that David organized, the singers of Israel's worship, there were 12. 12 hours in a day, in the daytime, 12 months in the year. Um, 12 Ephesian men uh, filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, that Paul laid his hands on. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes sealed and preserved through 
the tribulation, 12 gates in heaven. Uh, so if you were thinking there was just one, there are actually 12. Uh, they were made from 12 individual pearls, um, 12 angels at each of those gates, uh, welcoming people into the presence of the Lord, 12 foundations in the new Jerusalem, each with the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. It's uh, the city itself and its measurements, its length, breadth, and height were 12,000 furlongs. The tree of life in heaven has 12 fruits. The number 12 is clearly very meaningful to the Lord. So you can do your own numerology studies uh, throughout the scripture. They are quite interesting for us nerds anyway. 48.7 says, But as for me, when I came to Paden, Rachel died. Beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan. It's obviously still very painful for Jacob to remember the birth of Benjamin, which ultimately resulted in the death of his wife. A very difficult and challenging time. To say the least, you can see that account in Genesis chapter 35. It begins at verse 16, where it says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were but a little distance from Ethrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she had hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, you know, son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Beautiful picture there. And then he says, I buried her there. And if you go a little later in Genesis 35 at verse 19, we have that record where it says, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So the recounting of these occasions. Back in Genesis 48 at verse 18, it says, Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? But Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now, as we see in the very next verse, it says, Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. This is why um, you you see a number of things where he's not recognizing who's approaching him. He's not recognizing, you know, who's standing there. This is something that you know happened to his father also. This loss of eyesight with age, and um, you know, in this moment, it's actually going to play into what's about to transpire significantly. So as he puts the blessing out, you know, Joseph has this mindset that dad is confused because his eyesight is so poor. And, and that's not the case at all. So the eyes of Israel were dim, as we said. And Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. You know, when... You disappeared when your brothers sold you into slavery. I thought you were dead, and I didn't think I was ever going to see you again. I, I've experienced the blessing of the Lord, and I now have you back in my presence, and now I also have your children. 
It's a remarkable thing, right? My wife has that plaque at her house that says, if I had known how awesome grandchildren were, I would have had them first. You know, just something, you know, in both regards. I have taken back the curse that I pronounced upon my oldest daughter many times. You know, that one where you say, I hope someday you have a child just like yourself. Wow. If you haven't met Ellie, take him in and meet that kid. That is Christian in the raw. And, uh, you know, people watch Ellie and then they see Christian. They're like, no way. Lori found a videotape of Christian at that age. Yeah, it's the exact same child. The spirit that was upon her is definitely upon Ellie. It's wonderful. Uh, you know, it's wonderful because I don't have to deal with it. You know what I'm saying? I just, just get to laugh and watch and, you know, feed him more sugar. And anyway, it's just interesting. Now he gets to see not only Joseph, but he gets to see his grandchildren. Verse 12, so Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. So, you know, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. You know, that's the statement that he makes. And we saw in Genesis 41 at verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. So, you know, Manasseh, that idea of being able to leave behind and forget the pain of the past. And children will do that for you, won't they? The pain of the day, you know, they, they come to you and when, you know, the relationship is good and it's just that wonderful parent, child, they can make you forget all of life's problems. The wonder of how Manasseh could make him forget and then the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. I, I bet that there were many times as he was in prison and alone and suffering where he was looking at other people's lives being fulfilled, people getting married and people having jobs and people having regular existence where he was thinking, all of that's gone for me. I've been falsely accused. I'm now in prison. I don't have anything to look forward to in life. And now he has Manasseh and Ephraim, and he's realizing, no, no, I'm able to forget those difficult things, and my life is fruitful today. God will pour those things out on your heart and mind. So, you know, Joseph bowed down with his face to the earth, it said there at the end of that passage. Joseph, uh, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, bows to the ground in front of his father out of respect. There's a biblical lesson for you. You know, what the Lord said about honoring our mother and father. You know, some of us have incredibly difficult, incredibly sinful parents. You don't, don't injure yourself by disrespecting them. You know, you may have to keep your distance from them. You may have to set boundaries in order to protect yourself, your children, your marriage, your own household. But make sure that you don't violate God's word by being disrespectful of them. You know, in whatever method you can, obey, trust the Lord, and, and show them the reverence as due. You never know. You might win them over. They might surrender their heart to the Lord 
in the process. It's a fallen world we live in. Amen. Trust God and let him minister to you and through you. 48.13, Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards his father's left hand, Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near. Then Israel stretched out his hand and laid it, excuse me, his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. Manasseh was the firstborn. So this idea of the right hand, uh, biblically, it's the position of blessing, strength, and authority. We say to this day, you know, my right hand man. You hear that statement, okay? Psalm 20, verse 6 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. So this is you know, not just a poetic picture. It's a, you know, it's, it's a biblical truth that the Lord is relaying. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I'm going to sit in the position of authority and strength, blessing and power. And, and now what Joseph is trying to do is guide his oldest son with his left hand into his father's right hand. They're facing one another. And, and then the younger with his right hand into his father's left. And instead his father reaches over to place his right hand upon the younger and literally crossing his arms to reach over and place his left on the older. And Joseph is thinking, you know, dad's vision's really bad is what he's thinking at this point. So we're going to see the, corrections that take place here he blessed joseph and said god before whom my father abraham and isaac walked the god who has fed me all my life long to this day the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the lads let my name be named upon them in the name of my father and abraham and isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of of the earth. You know, when he makes this statement, God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the blessing has everything to do with God and his relationship and promises to this family. You know, we often, you know, think in earthly terms. If I can leave them money, if I can leave them property, if I can leave them inheritance, well, great if we get to do that. There's the spiritual inheritance which far outweighs any earthly thing we could leave to them. I don't care how poor you are or how well off you are. If you leave your children the inheritance of godly faith, that's irreplaceable. Nothing, nothing will match that. Right? It's interesting how when someone passes away, the will is read, and then the vultures come out. It's crazy, the stuff that's going on. You know, my father passed away when I was young, and there was inheritance that was supposed to come to me and my two brothers. And in the midst of that whole thing, getting all mixed up, you know, when I showed up and everybody's kind of like, oh, like, what are we going to do about this? You know, they said, like, uh, what do you want? And I said, do you have my grandmother's Bible? Yes, we do. They produced that and gave it to me quickly. And I said, thanks, that's all I need. 
And when my uncle passed away, I got his small library of biblical studies and his Bible. You know, I have my dad's Bible. These are the inheritances that I want. Give me the inheritance of your faith. The money's going to rot, right, and be ruined and go away. Let, let our inheritance be the Lord. Let that be the thing that we hand on to our children. And that's exactly what this man is doing. You know, God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked. That's what I'm bestowing upon you. And he makes that statement, God has fed me. That in the Hebrew language is very inclusive the way that he said it. It's, it's much more the idea. It is fed, provided for, nourished, but it's much more the idea of God has led me in all things. I hope you know that about your life, right? Because we look at the low points and the difficult points and we sometimes think, well, I wasn't really, you know, hanging out with God a lot. No, that's right where God was. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? He's shepherding us through the difficulties, molding us, shaping us, leading us. The, the hold of what you've been through, does it not make up your person? Does it not help you in ministry? Does it not help you identify with people and share with them your faith? I mean, what if, what if all the difficult points had never been experienced and were somehow extracted from your person? You'd be pretty bland, man. Really? Well, what would you have to share, right? I mean, you know, that term snowflake that our culture has, you know, pushed forward. There's a lot of that, you know, in our culture around us. People who've been so padded and so sheltered that the first time they experience any difficulty, they just wilt. Can't handle any challenge. The difficulties we've been through, the, the stuff this man has been through, God has fed him through it all, led him and cared for him. 48.17, when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand and removed it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Now, I just want to chase a rabbit here for a moment, right? This actually reveals to me a little bit of Joseph's heart, right? As much as we see the second in authority, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, bow down before his father. When it comes to this moment, he's like, oh, my old blind father. Let me just put your hand where it belongs. And the old man has to say, hey, mind your own business. I know what I'm doing. In my relationship with God, in leading my family, as being a patriarch of Israel, please don't stick your hands in my business. He has to sort of rock him back on his heels with his authority. He does it very gently. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great, but truly, his younger brother shall be greater. Then he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. 
God would later say in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9, For I am the father of Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So it's not just this old blind man fumbling along. This is truly God in the moment saying, No, I know how this nation is going to develop. And I'm going to make sure that Ephraim becomes very prominent. The firstborn in the Bible is often a position of preeminence, not necessarily meaning the first out of the womb. So we see that even in regard to Jesus, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It has to do with the preeminence and the authority. 48.21 Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I'm dying, he says. This is the end here of a triune patriarch that has been developed, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And at this point, it breaks into the 12 tribes. And the disbursement becomes much larger. He's saying, I'm the end of an era. Now things are really going to develop in an entirely different way amongst the 12 tribes. There's going to be a lot more that takes place in a lot of different ways than it has happened so far. You know, I'm passing from the scene. This is a very significant moment, not just in the loss of your father, in the change that's going to take place in Israel. This is a significant marker. 22, moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers. So that was the uh, earmark of being the heir of um, a family. If there were 12 brothers, like there are here, the brother who received the, you know, the uh, inheritance and was the heir, everyone would say, oh, he's the heir of that father or that family. They, if there were 12, they would divide all of the family's possession into 13 portions, and the eldest would receive two portions compared to everyone else receiving their one. Okay, So here, he's receiving those two portions in Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay? You're well off, Joseph. The Lord has taken care of you, the suffering that you've been through. God has blessed you and blessed us through you. But now I'm going to in turn bless you with a double portion in Ephraim and Manasseh. That's what the Lord is saying, and that's what uh, here Jacob is saying, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and bow, which I took from the Amorite with my sword and bow. Apparently, while still in Canaan, Jacob battled for control of a portion of the land from the Amorites, and he deeded the land to Joseph and his descendants. The descendants of Joseph are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. And when they're finally released, they're going to be millions, and they're going to come out and return to this deeded property and begin to re-inherit it unto themselves. So quite a, a magnificent display of you know this man's passing from the scene and all that he has to relate to his son. Just a, a couple more points. The last one's actually pretty big. Genesis 28, verse 15 says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. 
for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. That continues all the way to today. God's promises are unbroken with Israel. And what we see going on right now is him fulfilling those things. So be encouraged both in what we see God fulfilling regarding the scripture and the promises that are to us, but also personally be encouraged. Because at times it feels like he's lost his grip on our lives. And somehow we're adrift in the mess that is the world. And that's just not the case. God is in control. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lastly, I want to recap a few things here regarding Joseph. There are some amazing parallels about Joseph and him being an image of Jesus Christ. So consider, he was a shepherd. He was actually managing the shepherds for his father, watching over his brothers and what they were to do, much like Jesus. Loved by his father. You say, of course, there are sons that are not. <laughs> Even in this picture, there are, there are those who were less liked by dad. Right? So he was loved by his father. Sent unto his brethren. Hated by his brothers. Prophesied his coming glory. Even Joseph himself prophesied about his own glory that was to come. How the sheaves would bow down. The sun, moon, and stars would bow down to him. Right? He was rejected by his brothers. Endured unjust punishment from his brothers. Sentenced to the pit. Right? Jesus was sentenced to the grave by his brethren. So endured unjust punishment, as we said, sentenced to the pit, condemned to the pit, uh, though a leader knew he would go free. Sold for pieces of silver, handed over to the Gentiles, regarded as dead, but raised out of that same pit. Went to Egypt, Jesus did, as a child, a toddler or an infant with Mary and uh, Joseph in order to escape persecution made a servant, tempted severely, but did not sin, falsely accused. He made no defense, right? Joseph made no defense. Jesus made no defense. Cast into prison and numbered with sinners and criminals. Endured unjust punishment from Gentiles associated with two other criminals. Have you ever thought about that? He was crucified between two criminals and Joseph interpreted the dream of two that were imprisoned with him. One who turned out to be innocent and was restored, right? Today, I'll t uh, today I tell you, be with me in paradise. Remarkable, the things that you find here. Uh, one was pardoned, one was not. He showed compassion, brought a message of deliverance in prison. Uh, he wanted to be remembered. He was shown to have divine wisdom, recognized as having the Spirit of God, betrayed by friends, Glorified after his humility, honored among Gentiles while still despised or forgotten by his brethren, given a Gentile bride. Interesting. Here we sit this morning, the bride of Christ. He was given a Gentile bride. Was 30 years old when he began his life's work. Blessed the world with bread. Became the only source of bread for the world. The world was instructed to go to him and do whatever he said to do. Was given the name God Speaks and Lives by a Gentile, in fact. His brethren were driven out of their own land. In his second appearing, he did not 
first go to his brothers. He, they came to him. He knew his brethren even while unknown and unrecognized by them. He blessed his brethren without their knowledge. He went. He wanted all of his brethren to come to know him. Um, there was a significant time gap between his initial relationship with his brothers and his second relationship with his brothers. I've only got like 10 more. So he gave his brothers a way of deliverance through substitution. His second coming to his brothers had two appearances. Think about that. Right? Come and hold one brother and send them back, and then they got to come back again. So two appearances, come in the sky, take the church, and then later come and set up his throne. Right? So very interesting to see that there. He made himself known to his brethren at his second appearing to them. He was revealed as a man of compassion. His brothers repented of rejecting him with great amazement and tears. He allowed no fellowship as in eating together until his brothers repented and he revealed himself. His brethren went forth to proclaim his glory. He made provision for his brothers. He prepared a place for his brethren and he received them into it. He brought Jews and Gentiles together in the land. Remarkable parallels. You know, and for those of you that struggle with minute details like the rapture and you know the kingdom and when is Jesus going to set up his throne, Joseph straightens a lot of that out for us if we study his life and existence. The bigger picture is the bigger picture. God fulfills his word. Right? In Jacob's life, in his children's lives, in our lives, in what we just read about the promises of Jesus Christ, God fulfills his word. Forget the circumstances. Forget the opinions of the world. Trust in his word. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Oh, Father God, you're such a blessing to us. Help us to be men and women. Help us to be men and women that are submitted to you. We tend to be such rebels. And at times we even think of that as some good trait. Forgive us. Fill us with your strength. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us gently in your grace, in your mercy, Lord. Watch over us. Keep us. Protect us. Provide for us. Lord, be with Mary Mitchell. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.